morning. How are we doing this morning, brothers and sisters? It is so good to see you guys. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Seth. Uh, I have the greatest job on the planet. I get to serve as the youth director here at Fremont Evangelical Free Church, and I love it. Um, and so, guys, I want to, man, I'm so pumped you guys are here this morning. You know, during the week, it can get kind of busy, kind of crazy, and it's easy for us to take our eyes off of Christ and sometimes just get lost in the chaos of life. And yet we have this time here this morning to come back together and to remember why we exist, why we live, and that is to know Christ, to, to treasure his glory, to fix our eyes on him and follow him through this life. As you guys know, we've been going through the epistle of James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. This epistle was written right around the mid-40s, and it was written to build up and encourage the church in Christ. In fact, the church during that time was going through a lot of trials and temptations. Um, so if you feel like you're walking through a dark season in life, my hope is that what we're going to study this morning really speaks to you because that's the context of the people that it's talking to in this passage. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into James chapter 1. Jesus, we want to thank you for your goodness. You are such a great God. Lord, we need you every hour. We need you, and every hour you are available, Lord. You offer yourself to us. You give us your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us through this life. Jesus, you're such a great God. As we turn our eyes upon you in the text that we're going to be studying this morning, Lord, we ask that you would just help us to see you more clearly and, God, to love you with everything that we have, for you are a glorious and awesome God. Oh, Lord, exalt your name through our time here together, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. And I'd like to invite you guys to stand for the reading of Scripture. Standing is just a way that we acknowledge that this is the Word of God. As such, it's due our reverence. You can follow along uh, in your Bibles. I'll also have the words on screen. This is what it says. James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. You see, we as believers follow our God through this life, much like sheep who follow their shepherd. And sometimes, this path seems to take us right through the valley of the shadow of death. And the Christians living during James' time were facing persecution, and they would have been tempted to not remain steadfast and to fall away from their shepherd, Jesus, under these trials. And here our brother James, through the Holy Spirit, is encouraging them and us to remain steadfast. That is to hold fast to Christ. And the way he does this is set forth in verses 12 through 18. So the main point I want to drive home as we go through the message this morning is this. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. And the way we do this is we don't lose sight of the prize. We don't buy into the lie. But instead... We look at his goodness. 
So let's take a look at that first point. Hold fast to Christ by not losing sight of the prize. We see this in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. First off, I want, to know, I want us to notice that there is a man here who is blessed. That means he is under God's favor. He rests beneath his grace, and that is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You see, trials are like a fire that tests the strength of one's faith in the Lord. And we saw this early on in the chapter. When we are in verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. When we're going through hard times, it's, it's, it's usually we have a, we, it's easy enough for us to trust in God when life is going well. Like, oh yeah, God is good. Look at the sun today. But when we're going through trials, that's when it really tests whether we really believe God is good or not. And when you're being persecuted by non-believers, that's really going to test whether you're going to hold fast or whether he's worth holding on to or not. Right? So trials are like this purifying fire that really tests one's faith in the Lord. And the man who is blessed is the man who remains steadfast, that is unmoved, the one who is still holding fast to Christ, who is staying with him even amidst these trials. And why is that man blessed? Verse 12, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That is when the storm is past and the fiery trials of this life have subsided and the persecution of worldly men has been brought to an end. That man who has stood the test, who has remained steadfast, holding on to Christ, he will receive the crown of life. And most of the commentators I've read agree that this crown of life is more of a laurel crown. That is, it's a crown that is bestowed upon athletes who have won in their uh, sporting competition, like the Greek Olympics. This crown was to show that they were the dominant athlete in the competition that they were competing in, okay? This this wasn't back during a time when they gave participation trophies, okay? There was one victor <laughs> who won the event, and he received the crown. In the same way, the crown of life awaits those who remain steadfast under trial. Now, this may not necessarily involve a physical crown, but it does refer to a distinct and triumphant honor that is given by God to his faithful saints who stand before him at the end of the age. And I want us to recognize here that this is a glorious reward. Hear me loud and clearly. Our God is not the giver of lame gifts. And so if he tells us that this is something we should look forward to, that this is something that we should value the crown of life, then we should look forward to it. If you thought it was a, an incredible opportunity to be able to go to Burke Stadium to compete in state track and to be able to win a medal, this is a bigger deal than that. If you think it's a big deal to be able to get a D1 college football scholarship and to win the Heisman Trophy, if you think that's a big deal, this is bigger. If you think it's a big deal to take your startup company to becoming a Fortune 500 company, this is a bigger deal still. You see, this crown does not show that you are a victor on the playing field or a victor in the business world or a victor in the political sphere, but that you are a victor in life. And the honor of this crown is given by God himself. You are not being recognized by Governor Jim Pillen, nor by President Ronald Reagan, or by the actor Chris Hemsworth, or even by the Apostle Paul. You are being recognized by Almighty God. 
Just as Jesus himself speaks in Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Can you imagine being honored before the angels of God and before saints by God himself? Brothers and sisters, I'd probably pass out from the infant. This is tremendous. And this crown of life also means that you are a recipient of eternal life with him. You will dwell with him as a victor over life forever, reigning with him on the new earth in a paradise, dwelling with our Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying him forever. And you see, one of the keys to us persevering in the faith and holding fast to Christ is keeping our eyes on that prize. Because the strength of your grip is only as strong as the strength of your sight. The strength of your grip in holding on to Christ is only going to be as strong as the strength of your sight of Him. If God is glorious to you, you will hold on to Him tightly. But if He's not a very big God, if He's not a very glorious God, you, you're, you're not going to hold on to Him very strongly at all. The strength of your grip is only as strong as the strength of your sight. You see, very few of us will spend an hour digging a ditch for a dollar, okay? Unless you have some affinity for dirt and worms, like you're probably not going to dig a ditch for a dollar an hour. Though for 20 bucks, I imagine I could find some high school students who might be willing to come out and pick up a shovel. But how many of us, if we knew that after digging a ditch for an hour, we were going to receive a million dollars, would show up for that? Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, I would happily, joyously dig a ditch for an hour if I knew there was a million dollars waiting at the end of that. Why? Because I know that no matter how hot that hour gets, no matter how tired I may become, the reward is so stupidly worth it. I labored an hour for a million bucks. Are you kidding me? I don't have to work another day of my life. And I want you to ask yourself, does Christ mean that much to you? Is the crown of life bestowed by Jesus and the life to be enjoyed with him forever such a glorious prospect to you that you don't care how hot that day gets? You don't care how weary your hands become or how much people hate you and persecute you. You are going to hold fast to Christ through thick and thin to the better end because you know that in the end he's worth it. Is Christ worth that much to you? Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. You see, the reward so far outweighs the cost. They're not even worth comparing. Do you see that? That's what Christ holds for everyone who remains steadfast in him. And what I love is that God won't rescind this offer. This crown of life is promised to those who love God. So key number one to remaining steadfast in Christ is this. Don't lose sight of the prize. Key number two is don't buy into the lie. You see this in verses 13 through 15. You see, as we follow our shepherd through this life, it's easy to become discouraged and fall away when we lose sight of that prize. But if by God's grace we're able to fix our eyes on the prize, there's another factor that can often threaten to loosen our grip on Christ. And that's believing a lie that calls into question his goodness. And I would label that as the lie. The worst lie you can face is one that questions the goodness of God. Because if we can't trust him, 
then it won't be long before we stop following him altogether. Read with me, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Brothers and sisters, hear me loud and clearly. God is not the author of temptation. Trials and temptations are sure to come, and the enticement to pursue sin is all around us. But let us not for a second misdiagnose where it's coming from. We may assume that because God is sovereign over my life and temptations have come into my life, well, then it must be God who is trying to tempt me. And to this, God's word says absolutely not. You see, there are a couple things we need to understand about God. And the first one is this. God cannot be tempted with evil. Evil has no allure to God. There is nothing in, in sin or wickedness or evil that God finds even remotely attractive. Trying to get God to engage in evil would be like trying to take a big old fresh cow turd, drop it on the ground, and present it to your dad and say, Hey dad, you want a bite? If your dad's mind is even remotely there, there is no part of him that's going to want to partake of that, okay? It doesn't matter how much sugar you sprinkle on it. It doesn't matter how much confetti you throw over the top of it. He's not going to want to take a bite. Why? Because it looks nasty. It smells nasty. If you've gotten it on your hand, on accident, of course, it feels nasty, right? There is no part of you that wants to take that into your system. No part of your dad is going to want to actually take a bite of that. That is what sin is like to God. It is not in the least bit alluring or enticing to, towards him. Therefore, he cannot be tempted with evil. This is a cause of worship. Our God is so perfectly good through and through that sin is not in the least bit alluring to him. You see, you and I can be tempted with sin because we have limited knowledge and we have a corrupted nature. But our God does not share in these defects. He hates evil. So how in the world could he tempt us to engage in it? If you read Proverbs 6.16, it says, These six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. God is disgusted with sin. It is an abomination to him. He wants nothing to do with it. So how in the world could he then try and entice people to engage in the very thing that he hates? I love this about our God. This speaks to his holiness, the impeccability of his character. You see, you and I never have to worry about our God mistreating us. We never have to worry about him accepting a bribe. We never have to worry about him acquitting the guilty or robbing the poor or abusing us in any way. Some of us may have come from abusive homes. Guess what? Your heavenly father is not like that. He is good through and through. It is literally impossible for him to respond in sin. Our God is perfect and righteous and true 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year from an eternity past to an eternity future. You should worship him for that. There is no greater foundation to build your life upon than him. Therefore, he himself tempts no one. Our God does not entice anyone to sin. So brothers and sisters, don't be deceived by the sly. Our God doesn't tempt anyone. You may ask me, well, what about testing? It's true. Our God may test his people, but his purpose in doing so is never to entice them to sin. It is to strengthen their faith in him. You see, he tested Abraham not because he wanted Abraham to kill his son Isaac. 
but because he wanted to strengthen and display his faith. Our God is good. So if the temptations don't come from him, we have to ask ourselves the question, where do they come from? We see this answered in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Family, I hate to say it, but we are the authors of our own temptation. The temptation to sin comes from within us. It's not coming from God. It's with us. And I want you to notice the verbiage. Here it says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so I want to see by show of hands, how many of us have in this room have been fishing before? Raise your hands. You've been fishing before? Okay. All right, I'm speaking to a room of experienced people. And so I want to ask a question. What do you need to have on the end of your fishing line if you're going to successfully catch a fish? It's spelled out with four letters, and I want us to say it on three. One, two, three. Bait. Bait or lure. Either one will count. Good work. Way to go, guys. Bait. Absolutely. If you just try and take a hook and cast that on out into the lake, your chances of catching a fish, I hate to break it to you, they're pretty slim. Because a fish does not necessarily find a hook to be super alluring. You have to bait that bad boy. You have to put something on there that looks nice, something that it thinks it's going to get a good meal out of, so it draws near, it bites onto that thing, and then you reel him in and have yourself a fresh filet for dinner, okay? That's what you need. You need bait. And what I want us to see is that our desires are the bait that get us hooked by sin. Our desires are what our sin uses to get a hold of us and to, and to reel us into death. You see, the desire for sexual pleasure, for power, for fame, for respect, for money, for love, for glory, the desire for all these things have lured many, many, many people, the whole world into sin. And what I want us to recognize is that, therefore, the temptation to sin does not come from outside of us. It's, it's, it's not like we are these perfect people, and it's, it's got to be something from the outside that's really enticing me to sin. No, no, no. Most often, the temptation to sin comes from inside of us. That is from our own sinful nature and the desires that are produced by it. Verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire is here pictured like a mother. And when you give in to your sinful desires, choosing to delight in them in your mind, it's like that desire becomes pregnant and it grows. It grows until the time comes for sin to be born. Entertaining sinful desires will inevitably give birth to sinful actions. Let me say that again. Entertaining sinful desires will inevitably give birth to sinful actions. You can't entertain sinful desires in your heart and not expect it to translate into sinful actions in your life. And sinful actions will always give birth to death. The wages of sin is what? Death. Absolutely. People physically die because of their sin. People spiritually die and are separated from God because of their sin. And people die eternally as a punishment for their sin. Sinful desires lead to sinful actions, which lead to death. You see, trials and temptations often cause many believers to question the goodness of God and to wonder if he might even be the one tempting them 
And to this, God's word says, absolutely not. Don't believe the lie that God is the author of evil. The path to death doesn't come from a God who loves righteousness, but it comes from within our own evil hearts. Our God is good. We are not. Therefore, we must learn to trust him even more than we trust ourselves. So if we are going to hold fast to our shepherd Christ, we need to, number one, not lose sight of the prize. Number two, don't buy into the lie that God is the author of evil. And here's the third key, but instead, look at his goodness. We're going to see this in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The third key in holding fast to Christ is recognizing his goodness. Because the more of his goodness you see, the more tightly you will cling to him. Again, the strength of your grip is only as strong as the strength of your sight. God's goodness not only means that he is entirely incapable of evil, praise his name, but that he's also the giver of every good and perfect gift. So whether this be the sunlight that we're enjoying on a beautiful day, a working car that brings you to church on time, air to breathe, whether this is barbecue fresh off the grill, and if you had a good Memorial Day barbecue, you know what I'm talking about. Whether this is the strength to work, fellowship with friends, these are all good gifts from God. And every perfect gift is from God. Whether it be forgiveness from our sins, adoption into his family, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, or obviously dinner at Texas Roadhouse. These are all perfect gifts from God. You see, God is the creator of all things. He is the one who has crafted and designed every good gift that you see in life. You see, every good gift is sustained by him. If you, ha- if you are enjoying a good gift right now, it's because God is the one who is holding it together. And God is also the one who has providentially determined that the gifts that you have would have been given to you all right every breath you breathe god is giving into you every dollar you make it's because god is giving you strength your kids were formed in the womb by his hand your food comes from the rain that he provides your house from the elements that he formed your crops from the seed that he caused to grow you see god is the giver giver of every good gift So what if at any moment you aren't enjoying anything good, there is primarily one person that you need to thank, and that's him. Do you get that? Are you aware of how good God is towards you continually? Do you recognize how kind and gracious he is towards you day in and day out? That every time you take a breath, God is giving you air. Every time you eat, he is giving you food. Every time you listen, he has enabled you to hear. Every movie you watch, it is God who sustains your sight. Every day you stand, he is giving you strength. Every hug, every song, every cool breeze, every blue sky, every moment of joy, every encouraging word, every rejuvenating drink, every good report, every good thing you enjoy, any moment of your life is all the gracious gift of an incomprehensibly generous God. Have you thanked him for that? Because I don't know about you, but I'd be willing to guess I would grumble a lot less if I recognized how continuously he is giving to me. 
Let us not ignore or overlook the generosity of our God. He is very kind towards us. He's described here as the father of lights. Now this often biblically refers to the heavenly lights, to the sun, the moon, and the stars. And here God is depicted as being the father of them all, setting them all in place. And though he has set them in orbit in him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. They move, he doesn't. We call this God's immutability. Everyone say immutability. Yes, this speaks to the unchanging reality of his character and his nature. You see, our God is like a mountain that is firmly established. Though it may have been a couple years since you've been on a hike to this place, you come back and guess what? That mountain is still there. Day after day, year after year, that mountain remains. It's a picture of the, immu- of the immutability of our God. He doesn't change. Praise the Lord. You didn't have to wake up this morning and wonder if God would still be loving or not today. He doesn't change. You don't have to wonder if he's still going to come back for his people or not. He doesn't change. You don't ever, ever have to worry about his goodness, his kindness, his grace, his patience, his justice, his righteousness, his hatred of evil, his commitment to the truth, and the zeal for his glory to ever change. He doesn't change. A maximally great being who is perfect in power and wisdom and glory has no room for improvement. You cannot improve upon perfection. That is our God. Therefore, he doesn't change. What rest there is to be found in the unchanging reality of our great God. You see, this is a foundation to build your life upon. He is holy through and through, and he will never change from it. He will be perfectly good for all of eternity. We rely upon a God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this same God, according to verse 18, of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all of his creatures. You see, by his will, God determined to give us life. By his gospel, the word of truth, he caused us to be born again, to be brought from death to life, to be forgiven of our sins. Therefore, all that we are, both physical and spiritual, are the product of his will and his grace. And to what end? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Just as the first fruits were the earliest crops to be harvested, and they pointed to a greater harvest still to come. So these first century believers who are being saved are the first fruits of a greater crop, crop that, it, that God is continuing to harvest until the day when he comes to restore all things and to redeem all of creation. And so the main point that I want us to see through all of this is to hold fast to Christ. And the way we do this is we don't lose sight of the prize, we don't buy into the lie, but instead we look at his goodness. And so if you are here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to believe in him. He is good through and through. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the earth as a man. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he died on the cross in the place of everyone who would believe in him. So that as we looked at him in faith, trusting that he is God's son and his sacrifice was a sufficient payment for sin, we would receive his righteousness and he takes our sin and puts it to death on the cross. If you have not believed in him this morning, I want to exhort you to put your faith in Christ. 
His salvation is being freely extended to you, but it will not be extended to you forever. He's giving you time to turn from your sins and to trust in him. But if you do not do that before you die, you will stand before judgment covered in your own wickedness and not the righteousness of Christ. And all you have is an eternal punishment in hell awaiting for you. I do not want that for you. Therefore, repent, put your faith in Christ and live. And for the believer, I want to encourage you to hold fast to Christ. To, go, to hold on to him tightly. Say to Christ, I'm not leaving you. No matter what happens, I am with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And the way we develop that kind of steadfastness is laid out here. First, we fix our eyes on that million dollar crown of life. We never take our eyes off of Jesus. We don't buy into the lie that God is the author of evil. No, no, no. The problem is with us. It is not with him. But instead, we look at his goodness. Our God is holy. He is unchanging and the giver of every good gift. And when you get to the end of this life and you are standing before your maker, you're going to realize that the only reason you were able to hold on so tightly to him was because he never stopped holding on to you. Praise God for his faithfulness. Let me close this out in prayer. Lord, what a great God you are, unchanging, holy, the giver of every good gift. Lord, we have corrupted our past. Lord, we have done what is evil, but you are always good and true. And Lord, we thank you that forgiveness is fully offered us in Jesus Christ. Adoption into your family is fully offered us in Jesus Christ, that we can know you and have fellowship with you. And Lord, if there's anyone in here today who hasn't done that, God, would you draw them to yourself? And for your people who are here today, Lord, would we see you afresh to see your glory for what it is? God, you're a magnificent God. Help us to take your word, to treasure it in our soul, and to live it out through the power of your Holy Spirit this week. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to go into a time of communion at this point. And the purpose for communion is threefold. Number one is to remember our Lord's death. 